Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is November the 28th, and our chapter for today is Hebrews chapter 4. Now, when we pick up on chapter 4, we are finishing up what was begun in chapter 3. The writer is warning all of the Jewish believers that they need to take heed of what happened in the wilderness at Kadesh Barnea. God opened up an opportunity. God opened up an opportunity for the people to enter into the promised land, the place of rest, and they refused to do it out of their obstinance, out of their disbelief, their failing to trust God instead of their own instincts, instead of their own experiences. And so they are warned in the first century as believers not to follow the example of their forefathers and harden their heart against God. Not only did the Apostle Paul, I believe through Luke, warn them of that, but he said, just remember what Psalm 95 said, verses 7 through 11, that David, King David wrote and said, don't harden your heart. Who was he talking to? He was talking to the people of his generation. The same thing that happened to the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea when they didn't enter into rest and trust God was happening during the days of King David. Why would this be an admonition now to the first century believers? Because it is in the sinful heart to trust our own instincts, our own intellect, our own intuition, and not trust the words of the living God. And so this is what all of chapter 3 is talking about. And so in chapter 4, he finishes up and says, you need to be very careful about how you respond to the good news of Jesus, because Jesus has said that in him alone you find forgiveness, not in any rituals, not in any circumcision, not in any sacrifices. It is the atonement of Jesus, the Son of God, the righteous one. And it is through faith that a person, through trust that a person, through believing God that a person is declared righteous before God. And if you turn back, you're turning back to something that is not what God desires. And so in verse 11 of chapter 4, he said, Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, he's not talking about falling from salvation. He's talking about turning back from what you said that you believed, and when you do that, you miss God's best, and you die in the wilderness. You will never enter into the rest of God, to the peace of God, without trusting God. You see, the writer says in chapter 6, without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please God. Isn't it amazing that God has put the basis of acceptance with him on the grounds of something that anyone could do? 
that everyone can do, and that is place their belief, their trust in God. You see, if you have a desire to be saved, you can be. If you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, repenting of your own selfishness and self-life and sinfulness and turn to God, you can be saved and enter into the rest of God. And he said, the reason you need to get hold of this is because God's word is the basis of the assurance of our salvation, and that's how we enter into rest. Then he says a word that is quoted over and over again and many times is not quoted and applied accurately. Verse 12, for the word of God is alive, it's living, it's dynamic, it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, and all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. Now, I want to break that verse down for us. First of all, I want to ask you a question. To whom is he writing? He's writing not to Romans, not primarily to Gentiles, but to Jews, to Hebrews. Look what he says. The word of God is alive It's powerful. It's living. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And you hear all kinds of messages about a dagger, a Roman dagger, that indeed some of the Roman daggers had a two-edge to them, two sharp edges. But that is not who he's writing to. He's writing to Jews. He's writing to Hebrews that were familiar with the sacrificial system. And what he's talking about is a slaughter knife. That's right, a slaughter knife. As a matter of fact, the Greek word, its primary usage is not for a Roman dagger, but for a slaughter knife, one that was sharp on both sides. Now, why would this be brought up to the Hebrews? Because he's going to go right into talking about the high priest. He's going to talk about the sacrifices, and he's laying the groundwork for this because this is kind of the launching pad for chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 and so forth, where he's talking about the priesthood and the sacrifices. You see, every sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament except for one, which was the whole burnt offering, when the entire animal or whatever it was that was brought was laid upon the altar as a whole. But in an ordinary offering, there were portions. For instance, when a person brought a ram, a lamb, a bull, a goat, whatever that animal was, it was portioned. That is, it was slaughtered. And then it was skinned, and then it was put upon a block, a butcher block, because you've got to remember the priests and the Levites were primarily butchers, and they had assignments to do that. Every offering, the first part went to God. So there would be the greatest portion, the best portion that, first of all, was dedicated to God, and that would go on the altar of sacrifice. But then the priests got a portion because that was their share, and they got the portion for their family, for them. They could even sell that and provide a living. But then the offer got a portion. So there were three portions, God, the priest, and the offerer. And so how was that divided up? Well, a priest would take a slaughter knife that had two edges, and for instance, they would go just above the shoulder, 
or someplace that was designated on that animal, and they would go down with the cut, then they would go up with the cut, they would go right, they would go left, and proportion that, and it would divide just exactly the way that God wanted it divided. It would divide right at the joints. It would go down through the bone because it was a sharp sword. And this is exactly what is said in chapter 12. For the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's even sharper than that priest's fillet knife. And it pierces even to the division of the soul and spirit. You see, you and I cannot tell what is spirit and what's soulish. No, because it's just a part of us we cannot see. But God can, and God's Word can. It is able to divide between the joints and marrow, just like when a priest would divide those portions out. And he said, in like manner, it is a discerner, that is the Word of God, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, the Word of God is not just like a mirror, a perfect mirror that shows us exactly who we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we have, no matter what our education level, no matter what our socioeconomic level is or stratum or whatever it is. That doesn't matter. God shows every man the same thing. And he can get down into discerning a man's thoughts and the intents of his heart. You see, you and I can't even do that. People say, well, if I know my heart, you don't. You don't. The prophet said, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. None of us. I don't know my own heart. Many times I think I'm doing the right thing only to find out that my motives were not as pure as I thought they were. And the same thing's true with you. Don't act like you're innocent. You're not. The fact is, sin is so deceitful, we can deceive ourselves. But the Word of God can never be broken. It is always right on. It tells us where we're right. It tells us where we're wrong. It tells us how to get right, how to stay right. And so the Bible says there is no creature, nothing in creation that is hidden from His sight, but all things are naked open to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. You see, nothing is hidden from God. God sees it all. This is why I've said many times that when we are saved, we give God the title deed to our house. We give him the title deed to our bedroom, of our living room, of our bathroom, of our closets. That's right. God sees what's in the dark closets that have been hidden there. God sees what's on your computer and mine. God sees what's on your phone and mine. God sees it all, and he deals with us accordingly because nothing is hidden from him. So this is why I say when we give God our lives, we give him the title deed to our life. And so this is what the writer is saying. And then he goes on to say, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is it? Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold on to that confession we've made. Don't go back on that like the Jews were tempted to do, like the Hebrews were tempted to do when they were around people. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Isn't that interesting? Now, I hear people say from time to time, I think in error and wrongly, that every sin that I have ever been tempted with, Jesus was tempted with. That's not what this is talking about. You see, all sin falls into one of three categories or spread across all three categories. John, the beloved apostle, tells us 
in 1 John chapter 2 that all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is the desire to do something that God has not ordained that we do, or to do something in a way or a fashion that God has not allowed us to do. It might be something good. Let's take sex. Everything's right about sex within the proper relationship of marriage, but not before, not extramarital sex, not beyond marriage. Nothing wrong with sex, but if you have sex in the wrong way, in an inordinate way that God's not ordained, that is the lust of the flesh. That's the desire to do something. It doesn't just have to do with sex. It has to do with anything. That is a desire to do something that God's not ordained that we do or to do it in a way that God's not ordained. The lust of the eyes. That's the desire to have something. That's right, to have something. To just be eat up with jealousy, to have something that someone else has. It's not that it's wrong in itself, but if it's eating you up with envy and jealousy and all of those things, then it may be something that is really good, but you have taken it beyond what God has ordained or the way that God has ordained for you to acquire whatever it is. It's materialism, not lust of the flesh, not a desire to do something, but a desire to have something that God has not ordained that you have. And then the pride of life is the desire to be something. Now, it's interesting that what John lays out in 1 John chapter 2, all that is in the world, are the same kinds of temptations that Jesus faced as Matthew records in Matthew chapter 4. Now, think about it. How many temptations were given? Three. Why? Because all sin falls into one of those three categories. You name it, and it's there. And so Jesus was tempted in every category of sin that we are yet without sin. He was tempted. Temptation in itself is not sin. But when we give in to that temptation, it is. Jesus was tempted in every category of sin that we are. And here's what it says. Let us, therefore, since he has sympathy with our weaknesses, he's been there. He didn't give in to it, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, on the basis of that, come boldly, and that just means face to face, to the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy to find grace to help in the time of need. You see, grace and mercy are only given in the time of need. This is why worrying about stuff, we don't have grace to do that. I hear people say all the time, I just don't know what I would do. I'm talking about children of God. I just don't know what I'd do if this happened or that happened. It just scares me to death. Well, if that happened, God would give you grace in the time of need, but he doesn't give you grace thinking about what could happen, a hypothetical of what could happen. That will drive you insane, and the enemy will use that in your life. Now, listen to me. The enemy will use worry, fretting about tomorrow in your life to the point where it will disable you and render you ineffective in the work of God. You live your life moment by moment because that's all you can anyway. You plan, you do all you can to avoid sin and live in obedience. And if something comes into your life, that is crushing in your life or some temptation, God is not surprised by that, but he will, with the temptation to sin, make a way to escape. Now, he's talking about temptation to sin there. 
He's not talking about trials and testing. People say, well, you know, I know God won't put any more on me than I can bear. That's not true. You don't find that anywhere in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, God will crush you. God will crush you. God will put so much on you many times that He will crush you so that you will turn to Him. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the sacrifices that God loves and accepts are a broken and a contrite, the word is crushed, spirit. You say, well, you know, I don't believe God would crush my spirit, maybe my will. Well, the Bible says that God accepts a crushed spirit. Now, there again, that's what God says. And you can say, well, I just don't believe. Well, it doesn't matter. This is what he was talking about in chapter 3. Trusting your belief, your system of analysis, your reasoning above what God says. God will crush you to the point to where you will have no way to look but up, and then you will be more apt to believe and to trust Him. But with temptation, the solicitation to do evil, God will always make an escape route for that. Now, we don't always take it, but it's always there. Well, that's all the time that I have. For on the way, this is Tony Crisp. Have a God-blessed day. Thanks for listening to On The Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at tonycrisp.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.